Hello everyone and welcome to episode 105 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'll be your host today. Today's episode is all about a man called Dr Harold Moody and maybe from his title alone you can kind of figure out the work he did. The sources that we've used today to put this episode together are Daniel Whittle's Creating Black Places in Imperial London, The League of Coloured Peoples and Agri House, 1931-1943, which is in the London Journal, um, To Do Something for the Race, Harold Moody and the League of Coloured Peoples by David Killingray in West Indian Intellectuals in Britain, uh, edited by Bill Schwartz, um, and also Professor Hakeem Addy's um, African and Caribbean People in Britain, Peter Fryer's Staying Power, um, as well as a range of websites um, and online sources um, in order to put this work together. In the century that followed the abolition of slavery in the West Indies, the region produced many West Indian intellectuals. They were predominantly men um, and oftentimes spent a lot of time outside of the Caribbean in either North America or Europe um, and most of the time if they were from the Anglophone Caribbean it would be in Britain as opposed to um, another country in Europe like France or Spain. Um, And these included the likes of Marcus Garvey, George Padmore, Eric Williams, C.L.R. James, W. Arthur Lewis, Henry Sylvester Williams. And some of those names you might know from episodes I've already done on this podcast or from your own knowledge. Um, And some of them actually you'll find out a little bit more about in today's episode and next week's episode. Um, It also included a range of medical doctors um, such as John Alcindor, James Jackson Brown, Theophilus Scholes and of course the focal point and the man of today, Dr Harold Moody. Um, David Killingray in his work on Moody labels him as quite an underrated figure amongst some of these early 20th century West Indian arrivals um, and you might kind of agree in the sense that some of the names I mentioned before like the Marcus Garveys or the George Padmores or the CLR Jameses you know a little bit more about than um, Harold Moody even though they all kind of arrived in Britain at a similar time and, and conducted their work in Britain around the same time early 20th century. Harold Moody is um, perceived as a little bit more underrated um, than the others and um, we're going to go into not necessarily why that is but I think you'll be able to draw your own conclusions as to why potentially that could be the case um, as you listen in um, and we kind of get into his life. So Harold Moody was born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1882, the son of a pharmacist, Charles Ernest Moody, and his wife, Christina Emmeline Ellis, who had little formal education but was a devout congregationalist and had a very forceful presence in the home. Moody completed his secondary education at Walmer School. In 1904, he sailed to the UK to study medicine at King's College London, finishing top of his class when he qualified in 1910, aged 28. Having been refused work just because of the colour of his skin, he was forced to start his own medical practice in Peckham, South East London, in February 1913. And then in March 1931, Moody formed and became president of the League of Coloured Peoples, the LCP, which was concerned with racial equality and civil rights in Britain and around the world, wherever people of the African diaspora were um, living or, or situated. Its first members included the likes of C.L.R. James, Jomo Kenyatta, Una Marson, Paul Robeson um, and 
countless others but we will talk more about the lcp next episode not this one um so that's kind of an overview of his life um and we're going to get into a little bit more detail about his experiences moving to the united kingdom now Moody moved to London to pursue his studies and train to be a doctor at King's College. He didn't win the prestigious Island Scholarship that um, other people tended to rely on to get to Britain um, for further education because at that point the University of the West Indies had not yet been founded in uh, Jamaica so there wouldn't have really been an institution for higher education that he could have attended. Um, But what is noted is the fact that when he did arrive in Edwardian Britain, he was completely unprepared for the colour bar that existed because it wasn't something that was was written or spoken about, really. Definitely not uh, in law, like, say, it was in the segregated South um, in America. It was just something that existed. And if you knew about it, you knew about it. And if you knew about it as a black person, it was probably because you felt it. Um, He found it very hard to find a place to stay, Um, And despite winning numerous prizes during his time at King's, he actually struggled to find work once he graduated. Unlike many other students arriving, especially from Africa during this time period, the interwar years, um, Moody wouldn't go back home to fight imperialism and actually only went back to Jamaica on three occasions. So in 1912, 1919 and then 1946 to 47, um, he devoted his life pretty much to Britain to serving God uh, and to fighting for the rights of black people um, that resided and were situated in Britain. Um, And also those of the African diaspora that were spread further afield. He also took on the responsibility of helping his um, younger brother through his studies, through university uh, in the UK as well. Um, And, you know, as an active family man and, and once he was married later on and had children, you know, he continued that duty. Um, Racism was so bad at the time that by the time he had graduated from King's and expected to find himself a job as a doctor in a hospital or practice somewhere, he was rejected by the Camberwell Poor Law Guardians, as they said, and I quote, and this is um, something that's quoted in Friars uh, and Hakeem Addy's books, um, and it's quoted in different ways, actually, but um, I'll give you the most crude term because I think it's important. Um It says, the fastidious poor would refuse to be attended by a nigger. And in the, I think, I can't remember which book it is. I think it's in Hakeem Adi's. It says Negro instead. But I guess the sentiment is still the same. Even the poorest of society, those who are relying on a group like the Campbell Poor Law Guardians, would not want to be treated by a black man even though this black man has graduated top of his classroom kings, been educated in Britain, um, you know, has come from a British colony and for all intents and purposes perceives himself to be English, um, they would not be treated by him, you know. I always find racism um, meted out to, like, doctors and nurses and medical professionals crazy because when you're in hospital, you're in your most vulnerable, lowest of low position, you know. You are potentially on death's door, in agonising pain, discomfort, and medicine was not where it is now in 1913. So the fact that you can fix your face and fix your lips to be racist to someone that can save your life is just shows how deep racism cuts and embeds itself and worms its way into your psyche if you let it. Um, 
I find that just outrageous, to be honest. So anyway, as I said, in February 1913, he opened up his own practice in Peckham, um, basically as a result of not being able to get a job elsewhere. Um, and even though his first week's earnings came to little more than £1, um, he made it work and it was an extremely successful practice. Um, and with the wealth and the kind of reputation he built from that practice, he was able to actually support a lot of causes um, that were working to better the situation for black people in Britain. And we'll get into some of those um, a little bit later and also when we think about the uh, League of Coloured Peoples next week. Um, he also got married while in England. Uh, in 1913, he married an, a white English woman called Olive Tranter, a nurse who he met while working in the Royal Eye Hospital in London. Um, and they ended up obviously getting married. They had six children together and had pretty much a long life married together uh, raising their kids um by the late 1920s uh, it was very clear to harold moody that there was a lot of ingrained racial prejudice um and racism that was you know in britain within british people um and it needed to be opposed by more systemic action um and better directed pressure as opposed to kind of just brushing any individual racist encounters under the carpet um i think he realized that there needed to be like an organized response and a very heavily pressurized response against racism in britain in order to make the situation for himself and his peers a little bit better harold moody read very widely uh, and he read across a range of topics obviously outside of medicine that included politics history theology and economics uh, and was a devout christian as well um, he kind of was able to see racism through the lens um, of some of those disciplines uh, and kind of perceive it as a social problem um, that he was kind of encountering in Britain. He was also quite practically minded um, and aimed to kind of find ways to deal with racial prejudice um, and was keen to strategize to do so as I said he was looking for a sustained effort against racial prejudice in Britain so as I said he was a devout Christian um, and he was active in the congregational union the colonial missionary society which he became chair of the board of directors in 1921 and yes you did hear that correctly the colonial missionary society um so i think this is where we kind of understand maybe why he isn't um heralded in the same way as some of the other figures from this period um i think not necessarily his religion and being a christian but i think the way that he was potentially a little bit bound by that when it came to fighting racial inequalities um, and this is all my own interpretation, but to be um, a chair on the board of directors of a colonial missionary society suggests that there is an element of missionary work and there's an element of like white saviorism that he was very comfortable with. And although those terms are very much modern terms uh, of the 21st century that I'm using to speak on um, his life in the early 20th, um, they still have somewhat of a relevance, even though they kind of weren't used then um he was also president of the christian endeavor union in 1936 um and often preached he as i said he read theology um and made his way to the pulpit on a variety of occasions uh to talk about a colorblind society which he believed was necessary for the british empire to survive now this idea of colorblindness is not one that i like very much um 
I think it's very problematic to not see colour. Because if you don't see colour, then you don't see me. You don't, as a black woman, you don't see diversity. You don't see the benefits and the beauty in a variety of cultures and languages and backgrounds and traditions. So, yeah, this idea that, you know, as a defence to racism is being colourblind... For me, that's not going to work. Um, but we are talking about Harold Moody in like the 1910s and 20s. So this idea of um, being colourblind and him preaching about a colourblind society um, was important. And I guess it was like a small step. For it, for me now, looking back at that, that's underst- I can understand that in the context of that was the way he was dealing with the racism he was facing and that's the way he felt he could best influence the minds of those that kind of had the biggest influence on other people that might met out racism to them that being white British people um so I do understand his perspective but I don't agree with it is what I'll say about that as I've mentioned David Killingray labels him as an underrated figure um, and alludes to the idea that actually due to his conservative small c and religious nature some of his views are often described as a little too conservative um, and in some circles people go as far to label him as an Uncle Tom which I think is outrageous um, and unnecessary um, even looking back with my 2023 glasses on um however he was extremely calculated and quite cautious in his approach to dealing with racism in a way that others of his time were not and so it's very easy to kind of compare him to you know the likes of a Marcus Garvey or a CLR James the politics are just completely different um he is often seen through this kind of conservative lens and I think that's quite a fair assessment of him to be honest um Despite the lack of respect in regards to radical politics, he was still the go-to guy for that time when it came to needing support for a cause um, of the African diaspora. He was known for his, and I quote, charity, comfort, cash and contacts, um, according to Killingray. And there's quite a nice analogy that's used to describe Moody, which is, and I quote, White leftist radicals in the 1930s talked in terms of kicking down the doors of authority. Moody's policy was to knock politely, wait to be admitted, and then to argue for wrongs to be righted. And that is, I I think it's such a perfect way to describe him. You've got the kind of left-wing radicals of that period literally kicking down the doors. And Harold Moody knocking politely, waiting to be admitted, and then arguing for wrongs to be righted. So he's kicking, he's not even kicking down the door. He's knocking politely on the door and being asked to let in after the wrongs have already been happening. The On the other side, you've got people literally kicking down the doors of authority in the midst of the problems occurring. And I think that kind of really perfectly summarises um, Moody um, and the way he was. But also, we've got to understand where he came from. And he comes from a brown middle class in Jamaica. Um, so that kind of plays up to ideas of class, him being of a wealthier class than the average person. And the term brown referring to his skin, um, he was of lighter skinned and Jamaica is 
a pigmentocracy. It definitely was then and still is today in some senses. Um, and of course, it was a colonial society that was highly conscious of race. Um, and I feel like he was forced to prove his intellectual worth for the sake of the elites on the island um, and also in Britain. It was very much a case of, and his life really does epitomise this, that, you know, he was intelligent. He was clearly, you know, able, gifted when it came to uh, books and medicine. Um, and he was going to prove himself to be that intellectual and intelligent man um, at any given chance and opportunity. Um, Moody did think and believe that any Jamaicans that received a higher education or an opportunity to take up higher education had clear responsibilities as they had been given their intellect by God and should use it to its full extent and particularly for human good, which is exactly what he did in his life. You know, he uses intellect to become a doctor, to look after people um, and with the wealth he um, kind of built up doing that, then to go on and support causes um that looking at the kind of well-being and uh, situation of African people over the globe, um, he used it particularly for human good in the sense of healing people as a doctor and also financially. And then politically um, as well, when we come to look at some of the work he did with the League of Coloured Peoples and of his own um, volition. Moody's experiences within the late 19th century colonial Jamaican education system saw him exposed to social order based on colour discrimination. Jamaica was most definitely um, a pigmentocracy which prioritised those with lighter skin due to their perceived proximity to whiteness. And that kind of centres on beliefs that are rooted in slavery uh, and the plantation social order. Harold Moody was black. Um, his father was brown, his paternal grandfather being white. Um, however, as a child, Harold Moody's mother, even though she was dark skinned herself, urged her son to make friends with those who were lighter in colour as a way to socially advance. So it kind of, you kind of understand, like, this is the perspective of his mother, who is a dark skinned woman, telling him not even to play with those that are darker skinned um, because of the kind of social advancement opportunities of, of being around light skinned people. Um, really does highlight just the level of the pigmentocracy yes in jamaica but also this kind of proximity to whiteness and the the benefits of it and, and the way it's perceived to be very much advantageous um there's a quote that i believe he said but I'm not sure how far he would necessarily have agreed with it by the end of his life, but did say it towards um, the early 1920s. Um, and I think it's also the case that the British colonial education system does a number on people that go through it and then arrive in Britain. This is my whole PhD, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but there's an argument that the British colonial education system in the West Indies was an immersion in Britishness. And the curriculum supported this. The people that became teachers supported this um, because they upheld this idea that, you know, white people were intellectually more uh, superior and, and would be teachers literally flown in from um, Britain as opposed to actually training teachers up from the West Indies. Um, I think I would go as far as arguing that like other men within his generation um, that also found themselves in Britain, 
He was brainwashed into thinking he was British uh, and went even further to try and discard all traces of being Jamaican or of African descent in his mind. And he went as far as saying, and I quote, I had been educated away from my heritage and towards the country which I had learnt to call home. By home he means England. My desire then was to have as little as possible to do with my own people and upon Africans, I looked down as a species too low in the rank of human development for me in any way to associate with. I was black, and indeed I was not African, nor was I in any way related to Africa. To what family of man I belonged to, I really did not know. In my heart, I really believed I was English. Don't get me wrong, he did say this um, at a, quite an early stage in his life, and things did change as he began to get to grips and understand racism and racial apathy in Britain. Um, he began to take pride in his Jamaican and African heritage and also the idea that there was a common identity amongst black people globally. Um, in 1927, at a missionary meeting on Africa at the City Temple in London, he spoke of, and I quote, his pride as I contemplate the pit from which I was dug and feel overwhelmed and satisfied to belong to a race which has its whole future to achieve. I have never been more Jamaican than I am today. I believe in Jamaica. As a son of the soil, I want to do what I believe is the desire of every tree Jamaican, everything in my power to further the very best interests of the land of my birth. So there's a very big switch up um, from his initial statements about, first of all, um, perceiving Africans as too low in rank, um, which is completely derogatory uh, and just a product of what he's been fed within that colonial education system it is pervasive the way in which they look down and they've created this kind of hierarchy um of people within the colonies that puts african people at the very bottom um and the idea that kind of he's he's taken this all in and to the point where he can't even identify uh with being african he doesn't even mention mention jamaica by name within um that initial quote um, he really believes he's English uh, and doesn't understand um, how he's supposed to relate and he just can't relate with any other kind of identity. And it really speaks to what the British colonial education system does to your identity, um, which is something that comes up in my PhD uh that we're not going to talk about today to be honest um maybe another day but you can see he has developed his thoughts over time by the time we get to 1927 you know he is thinking about how he can be the best version of his Jamaican self um how he can do everything in his power to um further the um development of Jamaica he feels like he needs to be he's been taken from this pit which I would argue where he was was a pit um of self-doubt and lack of self-identity and, and self-esteem um but that's just what education does to you uh depending on where and how you're raised um but yeah I think his initial thoughts whilst obviously in part not redact he hasn't redacted them per se but you know he's clearly changed his mind um I think these are kind of the reasons why he's not necessarily held heralded as a radical um, because for a large portion of his life um, he really wasn't and he wasn't even aware of his own racial makeup um, and definitely not proud of it which I definitely say is an important aspect of black radical politics of the time.
Now, a lot of the work that he did um, was within the kind of realm of the League of Coloured Peoples, um, which was established in 1931, as I said. Um, It's too much to detail in one episode, so it will be next week's episode. But I will talk about, for the rest of this episode, some of the work Dr Moody did um, kind of outside of the LCP or alongside. Um, This included campaigning against racial prejudice in the armed forces, which I think I've spoken about on this podcast before, because my first let's say, academic encounter with Dr. Moody is actually when I was looking at um, Caribbean women joining the Auxiliary Territorial Service during World War Two, And actually, it was Harold Moody at that point that was campaigning for the colour bar to be removed in the armed forces. Um, I think not just because some of his children wanted to uh, be part of the RAF and be medics in the RAF, um, but also just because it was wrong to have a colour bar and he was very much against that. Um, And so that was kind of my first encounter with him outside of just knowing that he was a doctor that had come from Jamaica. Um, He's on one of the borders outside of King's College London. If you ever walk past that part of central London, um, they have the kind of alumni on all the walls, like noble alumni. Um, And I can't remember where exactly or what campus it is that Dr Moody is is on. But I do remember seeing him um, when I was studying there. Um, and seeing, you know, being quite proud to see a Jamaican uh, up there as alumni and and a notable one at that. Um, So that's kind of where I know him from um, in the first instance. But also he did a lot of work uh, with the seamen uh, after World War One and the kind of issues that they were facing. Um, He's credited with overturning the Special Restriction Order um, or Coloured Seamen's Act of 1925, which was a discriminatory measure um that sought to basically subsidize the merchant shipping companies that were employing only british nationals um and it required alien seamen to register with their local police um it's kind of early instance of, of surveillance of black people um many of these people that i'm speaking about by the way had also actually been serving Britain during World War One and fighting and being part of um, the naval forces um, as seamen. Um, however, many black and Asian British nationals didn't have proof of identity. They couldn't prove they were British nationals um, and so were made redundant. And this leads to like a kind of group of people that are unable to provide for themselves kind of stuck in Britain. Um, he also becomes involved in the Coloured Men's Institute um, in 1933, which is founded by Kamal Chunchi um, and is a religious, social and welfare centre for the sailors. Um, so basically working quite closely with that community of people um, in order to better their situation in, in Britain. Um, you know, as I've mentioned, he is a very influential and respected doctor in Peckham. Um, and he also is part of the organising within the local community during World War Two. Um, I think it's Stephen Bourne, the historian, who has said, and I quote, in 1944, there was a terrible bombing in South London and he was the first doctor on the scene. He played an important role in these events, saving many lives. Yet this wartime history is not known. Um, And I believe it was kind of part of the blitz that led to a really terrible bombing in um, a part of South London that he was familiar with. And yeah, he was the first one there. Um, provided medical assistance to anybody that needed it. Um, not a story you often hear, even though it's a, quite an interesting one um, and quite a, a warming one when you think about war histories that are also 
oftentimes bleak and, and murderous and violent and trenches and like trench foot. That's that's why whenever I think about war, I just think of like the Wilfred Owens and the Seyfried Sassoons and the, the poetry and the bleakness and the, the futility of war. That's what comes to my mind. But, you know, here we have this uh, Jamaican doctor who has essentially been told he will never work in a hospital or practice because he's black and nobody wants him. Um, and yet still continues to support Britain um, and British people when it comes to the bombing of, of this area in South London. His family were all extremely successful people, um, you know, by the own, his own standards that I kind of laid out earlier around intellect and purpose. Um, Charles Arundel Moody, Harold's son, became the second black commissioned officer in the British Army in 1940, rising all the way to rank of colonel. And his other son, Harold, um, was a British shop putter, actually. Um, and I know that some of his other children as well were part of the war effort during World War II as medics um, within different forces. His brother Ludlow also studied medicine at King's College London and won the Huxley Prize for Physiology. Ludlow married Vera Manley and then they moved to the Caribbean um, and then they had another brother called Ronald Moody who was a sculptor as well, so all very successful in their own right. It was for 30 years that Dr Harold Moody would go on and help hundreds of black people that came to him, um, having experienced the degrading, humiliating and embarrassing aspects of the colour bar at, um, you know, from his arrival into Britain um, and understanding firsthand what that was like when it came to finding somewhere to live, um, somewhere to work, somewhere to find community, he would advocate for these people, um, whether that was going to landlords or employers, and always plead the cases of those who found themselves the victims of, of racism, of racial prejudice and of the colour bar. Um, he was quite opposed to socialism and communism, which again, I feel like he doesn't, he won't fit into the uh, left-wing radicals um, that we might associate with the period because he's he's just not that. Um, he's more conservative uh, and religious. Um, left-wing political groups often criticised him, as I said, calling him an Uncle Tom and under the control of its imperialist masters. Um, and a lot of Pan-Africanists as well, um, they often are influenced by Marxist ideologies. Um, note the absence of any analysis of class from the League of Coloured Peoples, which we're going to think about more next week. Um, but I think there's another element there in his politics to to be referred to as he doesn't um, interrogate class at all. It's it's not something he would do, kind of being from the class that he's from. Um, however, in the last months of his life, he undertook a speaking tour of North America and unfortunately died um, at his home in Peckham, 164 Queens Road, in 1947, aged 64, after contracting uh, influenza. Whilst his legacy may not be as radical as some, he did leave a mark on British society through his work, through the League of Coloured Peoples and his family legacy, which is all quite remarkable, um, you know, despite him not being left wing. Um, I think especially positioned historically at a time that's often neglected when it comes to the study of black British history, and that is the interwar years. We often look to the post-war years 
um, and not that kind of small gap of time between World War One and World War Two. Um, Moody was in that generation that did so much to break down the barriers before this idea of a Windrush generation or a Windrush ship was even a thought. Um, and, you know, he would, as well as others in that generation, would ease the experiences of those coming after them um, and after World War II. Um, so, you know, he can't, he can't be forgotten when we think about that legacy, when we think about what he contributed by way of time, by way of money, by way of his talent uh, as a doctor. Um, and his contribution and his legacy is still remarkable, um, despite him not being remembered um, as a radical. Um, I'd say it's still quite important to to think of him and to, to remember what he did. And that is all we have time for today on this week's episode of the History Hotline. Um, I will say this episode is being recorded in... Most episodes I've recorded are recorded at the near the time of publication, like maybe a week, no more than a week than in advance. But the next few episodes that are coming out will all be pre-recorded, um, maybe two, three, even four weeks ahead um that's just because i'm taking a break so if i'm a little bit quiet then that is the reason but episodes will still be coming out because i planned in advance um, and they've been pre-recorded but it does mean that i won't be able to bring in any like contemporary points that i sometimes like to make in episodes so if you're thinking oh she could have talked about that today yeah i was probably thinking the same thing but for the sake of having a break um i won't be won't be doing that um but i hope you enjoy the episodes anyway and i look forward to i guess not being back live because these episodes are never live but a bit more live in the flesh (laughs) thank you so much have a wonderful week goodbye thank you for listening to this week's episode of the history hotline to continue the conversation follow us on social media at the history hotline on instagram and at the history hl on twitter the History Hotline is hosted by Diana Lincook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz.